Okay, uh, uh, good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It's uh, around three o'clock and uh, uh, after a week of, uh, of Easter break, we're back with the uh, online Hot Politics Lab. And um, uh, today it's a pleasure uh, to introduce to you uh, Diamantis Petropoulos Petalos, who is uh, started uh, April 1st, it's no joke, at the uh, uh, University of Amsterdam as a postdoctoral research in uh, Gijs's uh, ERC uh, project. And uh, Diamantos is, uh, is uh, a rare species in a sense that he has a real, truly multidisciplinary background and um, uh, did a PhD at uh, Radboud University, he was a postdoc at the VU and has worked extensively uh, with, uh, with, with insights from neuroscience and decision-making, uh, EEG measures uh, to uh, surveys and survey experiments. And uh, um, we're really excited that Diamantis is, uh, is joining us uh, or has joined us. And uh, today he will uh, give an, uh, a first teaser at some of, his, uh, some of his previous work, but also talk about some of the ideas he has for the things he wants to do with us in the lab. So uh, without further ado, Diamantis, the floor is yours. Hi. Um, hello, everybody. And uh, thank you, Bert, for the very kind words. Um, I'm, I'm particularly excited myself, like uh, presenting the Hot Politics Lab today. So good afternoon, everyone. And uh, thanks. Uh, it's great that you're joining today's talk. Uh, so let me just like share my screen so that everyone can see. That should work. That should work. Right. So um, yeah, my name is uh, Diamantis Petropoulos Petalas. I'm from Greece, as uh, my name can tell. And a week ago, uh, I started as a postdoc at the Hot Politics Lab of the Political Science Communication uh, Science uh, Department at the University of Amsterdam. And uh, practically, I'm, I'm here to, I'm joining the team on board to uh, work on as a connecting ring, to put it this way, between political science and cognitive neuroscience researchers. Uh, um, to, to what it's sort of becoming increasingly understood as political neuroscience or neuropolitics. So today I'll be uh, talking about beliefs and more specifically I'll start uh, by explaining uh, some sort of broad theoretical concepts uh, on why and how beliefs relate to cognition and thereafter like to political behavior, political cognition and behavior. Um, I will then argue that by investigating the neuroscience of beliefs and uh, belief systems more generally can actually be very informative for us for how specific emotional and cognitive processes uh, underlie socioeconomic um, and political decision making. And that can help us better understand human behavior in the social and the political world. I will then uh, present some of my PhD work on how predictions about the economy shape our future behavior and can explain can be explained by a number of uh, psychophysiological uh, mechanisms that are involved in this process. And finally, I'll try to sort of make a connection between these ideas and empirical findings to further and future research questions uh, that I'll be working with together with my colleagues at the Hot Politics Lab. So in all, uh, the, the title says it all, uh, and off we go for the upcoming uh, 29 minutes, I hope. So philosophers have referred to uh, the idea of, of beliefs for quite some, uh, quite some time now, um, um, referring to as some sort of proposition about the world being true. Ancient Greeks have used different notions for, for this uh, construct. 
linguistic construct, uh, namely pistis, dogs, our dogma, which um, um, uh, in respect, they refer to trust and confidence. So the pistis part. Doxa refers to opinion or acceptance of opinion. Uh, so, you know, the belief that. And dogma refers to obeying the core positions of a school of thought, to put it this way. So this is like the more hardcore sort of element of, of belief. Um, um, in all, it's, it, it sort of involves this mental representation about reality. So beliefs are thought to be these building blocks of our conscious experience, of our conscious thinking. And uh, different schools, for example, representationalism uh, characterizes beliefs in terms of, of these mental representation, while functionalists define beliefs in terms of the function or the causal role played by them. Um, perceptions can cause indeed beliefs and beliefs can cause actions. And I'll get back to this uh, point uh, when I'll start introducing my, my prior work. Um, other philosophers have defined beliefs as our interpretation about a given entity. Uh, with this respect, they mean that we sort of ascribe beliefs to entities or objects in order to predict practically how these will behave in future. So interestingly, beliefs are hard to, to change especially when shared with others, while deficient um, belief updating uh, can relate to psychopathology. So if you sort of like put these ideas together, you know, there's a, there's a strong suggestion that there is a biological basis for beliefs, which is probably half wired by 50% and learned from experience by another 50% at the very least. Um, indeed, I'd say that you know, beliefs can, can be conceived as, as those crystallized opinions or fragments of knowledge which are often poorly linked or justified, that sort of fall in between the, the sphere of things that, that could be true, so the sphere of possibilities, and the things that we think are true, so without necessarily understanding how or why. And therefore, beliefs can be seen as um, mental representations at higher levels of the cognitive hierarchy. And what I mean by this is uh, that beliefs involve uh, like a, a plentiful cognitive resources at more fundamental um, and domain general levels of cognition that seems to operate in synchrony. Uh, for example, um, um, these cognitive resources could involve networks that ascribe likelihood to entities, networks that uh, store prior beliefs, so sort of memory networks, neural networks that register upcoming evidence from the senses, uh, other networks that ascribe a reward on these um, uh, evidence from the senses, or even other networks that, that um, uh, code for a detection error. Um, and omit error detection signals. So as a result of, of uh, such complexity, um, beliefs can be very uh, hard uh, to, to disprove and they're very vague and abstract. Um, not to mention that um, before they can land on things we can talk about, uh, such political beliefs or religious belief or even uh, pseudoscientific beliefs, um, these mental constructs seem to involve very basic and fundamental levels of, of cognition, as I said. And I think that this is exactly the reason why it's very hard to change beliefs. The brain, in fact, needs more evidence from experience to disprove existing beliefs and change decision-making behavior, and that has consequences for how uh, we humans behave in the social world. Um, so beliefs are thought to be a byproduct of, of sort of natural selection, uh, perhaps a, a byproduct of the theory of mind processing, while some other researchers think that um, uh, it has roots in even more fundamental processes, for example, part pattern recognition, so visual pattern recognition. 
Um, there's mounting evidence from, from neuroscience nowadays pointing to both structural and functional brain differences in how uh, the believer's brain differs from the skeptics, for example, or where in the brain different types of beliefs are being located. Uh, for example, um, beliefs of, of doctrine, everyday beliefs or uh, relational beliefs can involve, again, very different networks in the brain. Uh, a very important domain general cognitive system for the updating and the maintenance of beliefs is thought to be um, the what's so called the predictive processing framework. Um, this, this sort of framework suggests in neuroscience, it's a neuroscience framework, and it suggests that the brain acts as a predictive machinery um, whereby it weights neural activity in response to incoming evidence from the senses against its prior higher order beliefs thereby emitting a prediction error signal that sort of feeds in and facilitates this updating process. Uh, this idea has its roots in the concept of the Bayesian brain, which suggests that it's in its nature, the brain uh, sort of represents sensory information uh, probabilistically in, in the form of distributions. Uh, I'm, I'm not gonna dive like more into these uh, neuroscientific details. I, I don't wanna scare people off, um, but perhaps this is a nice book for people who are interested in this topic um, that, that I really uh, find inspiring. Um, and I think it's interesting because it makes a very explicit link between the biological origins of beliefs and how these translate to phenomena that involve uh, belief systems. So, so far um, I tried to link uh, some theoretical ideas about beliefs to, uh, let's, let's put it this way, quantitative approaches of what is the believing brain, uh, which, so, uh, and, and discussed some cognitive operations that occur at the very micro level of description. Um, nowadays, they, there is in fact growing uh, interest in looking at higher levels of explanation, somewhat higher, where these operations at the micro level land on um, so if we look in this literature, we can see that the believing brain involves a series of maladaptive operations or biases, if that's perhaps a more politically correct term to use. Um, and these operations land on concepts like, you know, updating um, uh, motivated reasoning, cognitive rigidity, risk taking, or a, a series of, of perceptual, emotional and decision making biases. So the question is, why use cognitive neuroscience to investigate political beliefs? Well, we talked about um, uh, the functional differences um, uh, between believers and skeptics. Uh, and on top of that, political science and neuroscience, uh, which have been connecting for at least a decade now, they seem to suggest that liberals and conservatives think differently. They feel differently. They experience uh, sensation differently. They process emotion, humor, uh, differently. Uh, they respond to new information differently. Um, they have different moral foundations and different conceptions of what's justice, what's equality, what's empathy, and what's fair. So these differences can be actually explained by differences in physiology, in brain structure, and in epigenetic outcomes. Moreover, a number of existing studies have sort of indicated structural differences, not only functional, but also structural differences in the brains between liberals and conservatives. For example, we know that localized regions consistently respond to fairness and moral evaluation, and these seem to involve cortical and subcortical limbic structures, such as the anterior cingulate, uh, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, or even more deep structures like the bed nucleus astria um, terminalis and the, uh, the amygdala. So in short, 
um, there's mounting evidence that suggests ideological uh, worldviews can reflect differences in processing styles, which should be grounded in more lower level perceptual and cognitive operations. So in all, cognitive neuroscience methods can actually tell us a lot uh, on how these lower level operations map on these higher level concepts like beliefs, like political beliefs, but also how ideological differences and sociopolitical or economic beliefs can steer emotion and, and, and cognition. Um, and therefore we can use uh, cognitive neuroscience methods or paradigms that draw from there to sort of merge um, um, the, the distance between phenomena that occur and we describe at the macro level of the political world to operations that, that occur at the micro level of, of cognition. Um, so during my PhD, I want to make uh, a bridge here to, uh, to the work that I conducted for uh, Radboud University and the Communication Science Department, um, whereby together with my supervisors, uh, Paul Hendricks uh, Hetahan and, and uh, Hein van Schie, we investigated how economic beliefs translate to decision-making behavior and what sort of mechanisms, psychophysiological mechanisms are involved in this process. Uh, scientists, social scientists for, of, of like the, the last century had already suggested that beliefs can have very serious consequences, including political and economic. Uh, and there's a famous example by Robert Merton, uh, who suggested uh, that self-fulfilling prophecies may govern the, the, uh, the world of economy by articulating this, uh, this example about how fake news about the possible collapse of a bank led, to the, organiz led the organization to an actual bankruptcy in the end. Uh, this idea is, is quite appealing, actually. And um, if we look on what happened to the uh, during the recent socioeconomic crisis in Greece, uh, it's, it's not strange, it's quite familiar. So back then, uh, individuals would even queue in front of ATMs to remove their savings from the bank, uh, given the negative economic predictions about the future. Uh, however, this sort of idea of self-fulfilling prophecies was never actually put under empirical investigation. And that's what I did for my PhD. So we designed like three similar studies in which we used a modified version of an existing paradigm from cognitive neuroscience, namely the balloon analog of risk task. Um, and this, this was, as I said, originally developed by cognitive psychologists to uh, tackle uh, the trade-off uh, decision-making and impulsive risk-taking. Now, what happens in the task is that participants inflate a virtual analog of a balloon on the computer screen in order to increase the profit that is associated with successive inflation responses up to the size that the participant feels comfortable with. However, every decision to further inflate the balloon comes with an increasing probability of a balloon to burst. Now, in this case, there's no profit to be collected and the participant should start all over again with inflating a new balloon. Um, we chose this bar task because represents with an analog, a visual metaphor, if you wish, of, of an economy at risk of a burst. And it actually requires no sophisticated skills in mathematics or probability theory or anything. So it's quite intuitive and easy for the participant to, uh, to grasp. Um, well, while participants performed in this uh, paradigm, we, at a designated point, we gave them a balanced economic prediction um, in the form of a text message that appeared on the screen, which was very simple and read exactly as you, as you see in the screen. Um, note that the experimental conditions differed only with respect to the words that are being underlined here. 
Um, we used three studies, as I said, consecutively, starting with a behavioral one, um, uh, bathing uh, to the, the neural aspects of, of, of the underpins of, of this behavior manifested in the task using EEG. Uh, and at, at, uh, at the third study, we used um, um, skin conductance measures. So we used the within subjects design, we counterbalanced the order of presenting the, the news manipulation, and we had relatively small samples because we expected fairly large effect size, which uh, effect sizes, which indeed we found. Uh, and given that uh, we found no order effects, it made sense to just like uh, include every, everyone in the within subjects comparison. So we consistently find similar sort of um, patterns across the three studies. So to start with, of course, we find that uh, participants in the negative versus the positive um, uh, expectation condition uh, seem to modify the, their behavior accordingly, and that led to different profits made. Uh, we also found more, interest, more interestingly, as you can see on the top right of your screens, that during a sequence of 60 balloon inflation, so 60 rounds of this sort of game, participants remained uh, quite res um, resilient to change their behavior. Uh, they were very unlikely to change their behavior. Uh, so they sort of complied with the instructions or the, the, the manipulation, the message manipulation that we gave them. Uh, that actually we found very interesting and we wanted to replicate. And we also find that uh, we also found a pattern in reaction times, um, suggesting that as, as as the balloon grew bigger, the risk would become larger, and therefore it would induce more anxiety to individuals. That's exactly what we found, and we found that in the case of the negative prediction, this anxiety was even amplified, more amplified. So that uh, sort of um, uh, validates our idea that these messages, these at the very basic level even, they can have really steering uh, consequences for behavior. Um, so in a study two, we replicated the, the, the same behavioral uh, patterns. I'm only showing the, the reaction time pattern here. Um, and as I said, like we also included um, EEG to tackle the, the, the neural underpins of decision-making behavior during this, uh, this uh, paradigm, the bar task. Um, what we found, we found different um, uh, brain areas that seem to be uh, implicated in this uh, process. We actually found uh, visual components to be activated already 100 milliseconds um, after presenting rewards to participants. Uh, we found like middle line um, areas um, 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 that usually code for a prediction error or surprise, if you wish, in the, in the coming stimulus. And, and more interestingly, uh, we found condition differences between the positive and the negative uh, uh, information condition uh, in these uh, ERP, in these uh, ERPs. This was um, very, very convincing evidence for us uh, of uh, the what so-called predictive framework, uh, predictive processing framework. So as I introduced earlier, the brain seems to already code stimuli from experience on the basis of prior expectations. And we were able to tackle this process already at, 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 at the range of 100 to 500 milliseconds after presenting a stimulus, which participants had a certain expectation about. So this is what these signals that I, that I show you here practically translate to. That's the functional um, uh, interpretation of it. Um, 
In study three, we used um, uh, skin conductance to tackle the sort of emotional aspect uh, behind the, the pattern of results we, that we found in the earlier studies. Uh, we did replicate again the same uh, pattern of results. This is the reaction times again. So again, we have like this uh, significant difference in the, in the two conditions. Um, we also found, and that's quite interesting in my opinion uh, as well. So we also found a difference in skin conductance levels at the moment that participants were actually reading the message. So what you see here is reading time. Uh, it took an average about like eight, 10 seconds for, for participants to, uh, to read this, this little message. And within that time, we saw uh, that um, participants who participated in the, in the negative condition, uh, their skin conductance levels seemed to, uh, to increase, uh, suggesting that they experienced more anxiety associated with the message. So already in view, in light of, of these fake news, there is emotions involved in, in the process of updating beliefs. And uh, we also found um, um, a decreasing uh, pattern of uh, skin conductance levels across rounds, but only for the positive uh, uh, message condition, implying that people who participated in, in, in with a more positive expectation about how the balloons would evolve in the future, had, uh, were playing this game at a more uh, restful mindset, to put it this way. So um, across three studies, we practically replicated uh, results. We found quite, a, quite a identical results. And uh, we saw that, that beliefs can cause uh, behavioral self-fulfilling prophecies. We saw that these um, sort of tendencies, behavioral tendencies are very hard to change. So it's, it's difficult to disprove the, the, this initial belief on the basis of evidence that comes from, from experience. And we interpreted that as an, um, as, uh, an influence on the mental model or the, me uh, the, the mental representation of the BART economy and the emotional reality associated with decision-making in this task. Um, uh, we also um, found uh, that um, um, this manipulation modulates reward processing of gains and losses and it modulates the predictive processing of, of visual stimuli as well. Uh, interestingly, uh, follow-up questions would evolve uh, the role of political ideology, I think, in risk-taking using a very similar paradigm. And if I have some more time, uh, perhaps I'll present like this slide afterwards. But perhaps more interestingly, uh, in the coming months, we hope to um, bring into life a number of projects uh, that we want to launch together with colleagues of mine at the Hot Politics Lab, um, involving the concept of emotional and cognitive biases in political contexts, as well as the, the role of different misinformation characteristics on emotion elicitation, information selection, and information credibility. Uh, so I hope this line of work uh, that, that sort of tries to bring together fundamental processes to more socio-political behavior and, and phenomena that we, we see at the micro level, can serve as a solid material for uh, merging some of this gap between the social sciences and the neurosciences. Um, so I have this slide since I have a few more minutes. Uh, so that would be a nice follow-up uh, taking from, from the previous study uh, using the balloon analog of risk, where we could use uh, a similar task uh, to tackle uh, risk-taking and political ideology. So in this case, we could think of, of the modified BART as uh, chances of increasing probability of getting sick from being vaccinated, for example, in light of a, I don't know, like a, a virus um, um, epidemic. 
And we could use um, like this as a frame actually to tackle real world perceptions of risk in relation to this topic of vaccination. And we could actually compare um, um, behavior and perhaps even neural underpins of this behavior uh, on the basis of political ideology differences. Um, in this case, we could use manipulations um, uh, from manipulations about the risks that are associated with vaccination programs. For example, there's news about this like mutated virus and uh, how do people respond to it. Um, so that would be like a project we're, uh, we're currently working on. Another project we're working on is uh, tries to tackle the question how individuals um, uh, jump into conclusions, so how they actually make inferences and judgments on the basis of evidence from experience. And to do that, we again borrow uh, from, from paradigms uh, from cognitive neuroscience, and in this case, the bits in the jar task, which comes merely from, uh, from the delusions literature in psychiatry, whereby people are given, let's say, a, a visual metaphor of a jar with, with colored marbles in it, but they can't see, obviously, the color distribution. They can only, you know, like black and white marbles, to put it this way. And then they have to sample one after the other uh, until they feel confident in making a decision about the, uh, the, the majority of, of marbles, of, of colored marbles, or the distribution, if you wish, of, of the color marbles in the jar. So that uh, paradigm has been used before to um, um, uh, tackle delusions and jump into conclusion biases. And because these constructs are highly related to, uh, political, um, to the political brain or processes that take place in the political brain, we hope to tackle uh, some aspects of political ideology, again, using uh, lessons from neuroscience. Uh, so that's it for me. Um, I'm open to questions. I'm, I'm very excited to receive your questions. And I want to say a big thank you to uh, people from our lab. Uh, it seems that people are increasing uh, and becoming, uh, well, becoming more and more. So a big thank you to, to all of you and a big thank you for, for you, for your attention and for joining this uh, lab presentation today. Thanks a lot, uh, Diamantis. Uh, great presentation. Uh, very, uh, I learned a lot. Um, so I'm really looking forward to these uh, uh, to these projects that we're going to uh, develop. Um, okay, so um, now back to uh, business as usual. You can write your questions into the Q and A box, and I will read them aloud, and then then Diamantis uh, will hopefully answer. Uh, first question is from Xingyao. Uh, thanks for the presentation. I have a question. Do you think there would be a difference between a neural basis or maybe behaviors also of conscious and unconscious beliefs? Uh, thanks for the question. Xingyao, this is um, already you're diving in, in deep to put it this way with, with your question. Uh, it's, it's quite hard to tell actually until, um, you know, before we, we could have some sort of empirical understanding of, of how beliefs and what sort of beliefs we're talking about here. But my sort of first um, assumption here would be that more conscious uh, or more aware uh, representations of, of um, political belief, for example, ideology, would probably rest in areas related to language. Yeah, okay, you can hear me. I'm sorry. I, 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 was, I was looking on the mute button and I thought it was pressed, but it was not. So, um, uh, for instance, if you look on Wernicke's or Broca's areas, you might actually see 
uh, more activity in cases where people um, experience consciously um, um, ideology, for example, or like other sort of beliefs. I don't know if that answers your question or at least addresses it like to some extent, hopefully it does. If not, then uh, uh, I'll just write a, write a follow-up and uh, we'll, uh, we'll address that. Uh, thanks. Uh, I had a question and the amount is, um, a lot of the political neuroscience literature is focused on this distinction between liberal and conservative ideology. Mm-hmm. And, and, and coming from a context where, um, you know, ideology is typically conceived as multidimensional and you yourself are, are from also a context where ideology, ideology is, is conceived as much more multidimensional than, than, than in the U.S. In fact, I mean, the U.S. is also multidimensional. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, what other aspects of ideology that do not pertain to the social liberal conservative dimension do you think would be relevant to study uh, in in political neuroscience? Um, there is a, there is a number of, of um, um, processes that, that that might be interest uh, that might be interesting to tackle, I guess, in this this process. Um, so I already introduced a few during my talk. Um, think about fairness, think about trust more generally, uh, think about um, all levels of cognition where hardcore pre-wired beliefs, so we can, we can look on beliefs as a more general umbrella term. And if you wish, that's, that's the sort of take-home message that uh, I'd like to, uh, to bring in with, with this presentation today. So in light of this more broad um, um, understanding of beliefs as a more broad system, we could think of, of uh, quite a number of topics uh, related to politics that go beyond, of course, the level of uh, not sure if you can hear That's us. But... Question? Oh, there you are. Yeah. I bet we missed a part at the end. Hello? Oh man. Dimantis. This is the foo equipment, right? That is not working. Yeah, this 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 question was just too hard. We froze the amount. Is it's uh, it's unfortunate. Our speaker just died. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I would be able to to answer the questions. <laughs> I'm getting a message now from Diamantis. What's happening uh, on a different channel? Obviously, <laughs> I'm j- I will just tell him uh, uh, you're frozen. Just just bear with us for a moment. I think this will be. Oh, he says it launches again. Okay, so uh, I think uh, uh, the amount just needs to uh, restart for a moment. It's just enough time to open the book and find the answer, right? Hi. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. The amount is. I mean, if if you didn't know the answer, you could have just told us. You don't have to like pretend that it's not working <laughs> and then pick up a book and then find the answer. There's actually an excellent uh, app for uh, stopping, you know, like uh, escaping zooms, but. Uh, <laughs> No, uh, we just I missed mean, the very, very last, very last few sentences, I think, of what you right. said. Um, so I think like I introduced like a, a few functional differences between uh, like believers and skeptics. And, you know, given that, that, that um, like my endeavor is, is to sort of like my vision about belief is that it's a more general, like domain and specific um, uh, process that then manifests in like political beliefs or religious beliefs or any kind of other beliefs. I would predict that there is definitely more more room to uh, to do research on that goes beyond the the liberals conservatives um, uh, dimensions. 
so you know, partly though the work that I introduced with economic expectations and follow-up uh, decision-making behavior sort of gives an example, I guess, of, of uh, how, we can man uh, how we can use uh, cognitive neuroscience to tackle phenomena that occur at the sociopolitical level. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, there are other ideas that we could look at, um, that we could look in, into. Um, I don't know if, if something specific, is there something specific you want me to, to sort of say here? Because there could be a number of things that I could, uh, I could say. I think what, what, what would be interesting to think about is that, that some people conceive also cultural liberal and conservative ideology as, as, as your position towards inequality, yeah. right? But, but we can think of inequality in different ways. I mean, we can think of it as sort of almost a traditional anthropological way as, as, as some people have more rights or more access than, than others. Whereas in, in, in contemporary politics, it's, it's much more economic inequality that we talk mm -hmm. about, right? So it's, it's, it's about dist distributing goods. Uh, and so would these two, you know, may, maybe these two ways of talking about inequality are, are, are both the same in our brain or maybe they're, they're different, I don't know. So there is uh, some work uh, showing um, a functional, different, functional brain differences between people who sort of identify with Western cultures as opposed to Eastern cultures. So that's a classic topic of research uh, in the social sciences, I guess. But there is also like some uh, neuroscience evidence uh, showing that indeed people who think of, you know, their, their self versus the common good and prioritizing ideas accordingly, not only behave differently, but they also exhibit different um, patterns of brain activity. So perhaps that's, that's a take that, that fits within the, uh, what, what you describe about inequality. Yeah. yeah. Okay, thanks. Hey, let me get back to Xinyao for a second uh -huh. and then move on to the other questions we have. Uh, because Xinyao writes in the chat that uh, she thanks you for your answer. And she says, I read an article somewhere about how people can use learned knowledge to suppress more unconscious implicit bias, like racial bias, for example. So I was wondering if that relates to some specific neurological, uh, sorry, neural processes. Um, good thinking there. I haven't actually um, seen like the, this line of work myself. Um, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised that that knowledge can suppress. So knowledge, if, if you see actually knowledge as, again, a sort of belief system that could sort of superimpose in, in other like uh, existing uh, systems of belief uh, within which um, racial discrimination ideas might lie, might lay at. <clears throat> so I wouldn't be surprised if indeed like knowledge can sort of inhibit uh, activity that it's, um, that it's found to be in, to be in these cases that you uh, refer to. Yeah. Okay. Hey, uh, next question is from Chris Jungerius. Could you speculate on how exactly the ERP change is involved in costly, is involved costly in subjects change in risk-taking behavior? Right. So, um, yeah, that, that, that's a fair question. So you also came back like in the reviewing uh, process uh, of, of that paper. So what we did in the study is that we, we started with an exploratory approach where we first identified like regions of interest practically by, um, by looking on specific um, um, time range and locations of the brain that we know that respond 
uh, to events in the BART task. We know this from previous uh, studies. So we started from there. Indeed, we identified that these were the, the sort of networks involved in, in our version of the BART. And then we looked on the difference uh, produced in the CRPs on the basis of, of uh, the message change. So I would say that the, the, the causality there um, lies in, in the contrast between the positive and the negative uh, um, conditions. And because this design was within subjects, it sort of allows us to, to make this causal claim. Um, if you wanted to really to, to take this um, uh, very deep, I would, I would definitely be in favor of replicating results in a, in, a, in a different context, as for instance, the, the political context or the vaccination context that I um, introduced briefly before. Okay, thanks. Uh, next question is from Matthijs Roduin. Thanks, uh, Diamantes, and welcome to the lab. Building on Gijs's question, I have a very general question about the idea of the liberal versus the conservative brain. To what extent are, according to you, differences between liberals and conservatives the results of either biological factors or the interaction between the brain and social political phenomena? Are there, for instance, differences between people in multi-party systems compared to part two party systems like US or UK? This is a very long way of Matthijs saying, welcome to a political science department. Uh, hi, my thanks. Uh, great, great to be on board and thanks for your question. I think that your question really lies in between what, what Heis um, already asked and, uh, and what Xinyao asked. So um, yes, it, it's hard to really point on an exact percentage of involvement uh, between, let's say, the, yeah, the, the hardwired biological and, and genetically predefined uh, predispositions on, on political ideology and uh, so the, the more uh, social or culturally imposed um, ideas. So I guess that uh, to, to some extent, and there is uh, quite some literature showing that uh, genetics play a role there, uh, it seems that the, there is this like sort of component that is uh, like hardwired and it, it really relates to, it doesn't, it doesn't manifest at the level of ideology until we, we sort of like put the, the words for it. So it starts manifesting at very low levels of, of cognitive operation systems. For example, the way that people code um, incoming stimuli for, from experience um, could be different as a result of, of subtle differences, genetic factors and so forth. So biological, <clears throat> biologically uh, wired to put it this way. On top of that, um, uh, we could have like knowledge systems that are learned by experience or culture that sort of teach the brain how to behave more adaptively in this process of updating its prior beliefs. The, uh, whether and to what extent you know this process would be you know successful in the end, so that you know culture um, uh, wins the battle here. Um, that, that that's I, I guess an empirical question. It's, it's still a pending question and a, a very motivating question for a number of researchers. So yeah, I hope that sort of addresses your question. I know it doesn't answer it, but. <laughs> uh, thanks, uh, Diamantis. Uh, we have uh, another question uh, from uh, Martin Rosema. Uh, thanks a lot for the interesting presentation. I have one question that intrigues me. At some point, you refer to beliefs as an umbrella term. On the one hand, I like to use such general terms and adopt an umbrella term. On the other hand, perhaps we then use the same term for rather different phenomena. I recognize the same for the concept of emotion, where in lay people's language, we use the same word for scientifically different phenomena. 
speaking of about beliefs from a neuroscience perspective, would you be able to disentangle phenomena that are different while we use the same word of beliefs in our ordinary language? If so, what should be distinguished in your view? Wow, I'm really happy I'm not sitting in your chair today. Yeah, these are really, really... Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, um, yeah, so... Um, absolutely. So, like, uh, using these vague languages, especially when it comes to emotions, uh, that, that, that's something that people understand quite differently. Uh, even scientists actually understand it quite differently. So if you ask like neuroscientists, psychologists and sociologists about the role of emotions and you know their function in everyday life, I'm sure you'll get like pretty different answers about what, what emotions are in the end. Um, myself, I have like a sociology, so I'm, I'm a sociologist by training. So I, I do find like your question like very interesting. And in fact, it's, it's one of the primary reasons why I'm sort of trying to combine um, different um, scientific angles or perspectives on, on how to follow up on this phenomenon. So um, uh, in my view, I think that, you know, different methods can allow us gain insight at different levels of, of, of this phenomenon, as I sort of implied with my presentation. Uh, for instance, um, if, we, if we look on, on what the brain does, like during a uh, sort of emotion uh, elicitation situation context, uh, we, we wouldn't be able to explain exactly what's happening unless we would also have some self-reports or unless we could like combine these like with some skin conductance data. So um, it seems, you know, the, the brain gives the, 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 the first elements for like the human body to operate accordingly based on the stimuli it, it, it gets from experience. And uh, then these sort of processes manifest in bodily reactions. One of those could be uh, skin conductance or heart rate. So by, by tackling different levels, using different methodologies every time, we can explain more and more and add like more in this sort of complexity of what emotions are in the end. So from a neuroscience perspective, I'd say that, you know, emotions could be characterized by more sort of approach versus a pro, um, um, avoidance uh, contexts. Uh, from a psychological perspective, you could, you, you could sort of, you know, refine this distinction between anger and happiness, which are sort of promotion emotions, as opposed to, you know, um, fear or um, distrust, which are less mobilizing emotions. So they sort of um, 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 lead the, the, the person to take a step back in this case, so uh, avoidance. And I guess like from, from a sociological perspective, emotions would be something that we use to, I don't know, like communicate with others. Uh, like within, within this world and beyond, you know, the level of semantics. Um, so I guess the answer is that is that we we use these. Um, yes, I agree with you that we use these terms like quite differently sometimes. But in the end, we are trying to to to, to discuss like very similar phenomena from from different perspectives, if you wish. And uh, to tackle a little bit to to address a little bit your concern about the, the beliefs. He has to look that up in the book. <laughs> that, um, uh, that, uh, that manifests in very different forms of belief in the end. Uh, it's because... Uh, Demons, I'm not sure if you can hear us, but uh, we've lost you again. So, uh, yeah, Martin, I think your question was just too difficult. 
it uh, it broke it broke the Amantis's computer. <laughs> Let's wait uh, a second again to see if he comes back. <laughs> ah, it's a good thing this is not his PhD defense. <laughs> Yep, you're back. Yeah, uh, the funny thing is that I, I just don't understand where the moment is. So I keep on talking and talking and talking. And then at some point, I realize that nobody's moving anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I don't know if uh, um, where. You, you talked about beliefs already, uh, saying that. Uh, okay, you heard yeah. a little bit part. So um, yes, I was just like saying that indeed beliefs are these overarching idea that actually can manifest to uh, a number of like more specific um, a number of more, more specific or concrete sort of uh, ideas such as like political beliefs or religious beliefs and so forth and so on um, so uh, the reason why i like um, talking about beliefs is exactly because they're so vague and they can be you know manifested and translated in so many different ways um, i don't know if, if that sort of helps helps you understand my, my angle a little bit more. I, I share the concerns with you. Yeah, well, it's, uh, at least uh, it's honest that you, uh, that you say that the fakeness is actually helpful in this case, that <laughs> uh, that, that helps, yeah. Um, Bert has a question. Yes, thanks, uh, Diamantis. Uh, so, so it's going to be a bit of a political science question, um, but in in understanding what beliefs are, uh, quite some political scientists uh, um, argue that that many people might not have a very structured belief system, and uh, and that it's only the people who are really sophisticated in politics that they know how to construct a coherent set of of uh, of beliefs it, how does that relate to to the neuroscientific perspective on beliefs where it seems to suggest that it's a universal tendency of people that they can do it so so does that say to the sophistication literature political sophistication literature which argues it's only the sophisticated that it's a matter of motivation or are there maybe structural differences that that maybe inhibit some people to just form coherent beliefs? It's um, a great question, Bert. Thanks. So, um, I, I guess I guess uh, the the answer will be quite similar. We're like with uh, with the answers I already uh, tried to to give to other questions. Uh, so if, if I get this right, you're asking how political sophistication plays in and to what extent the sort of universal, uh, universality or biological origins of beliefs uh, juxtaposed to, uh, to this uh, political sophistication. Um, I think that, you know, if you, if you really ask me, I think that the more sophisticated one is, the less likely that they have very rigid cognitions about things in the world. That's of course like my own assumption, my own speculation or based obviously it's an educated guess, but uh, it, it's not like a, a result of empirical research whatsoever. It's sort of my understanding of literature. 
so I think that um, um, cognitive rigidity or cognitive flexibility might be terms that are quite important here in order to understand this interplay. Uh, I'd say that polit political sophistication or like knowledge, uh, more broadly speaking, is what sort of allows the brain to be more flexible and more adaptive to different uh, situations, politically speaking, right? Um, um, so I would argue that those who exhibit more rigid or more like conservative views would be indeed people who have more, um, um, le less, you know, a tendency to be less open for new experiences. And I think that there's also some work showing uh, correlations between such personality traits and um, um, political sophistication in this case. Okay, uh, Diamantes, I think this this uh, question uh, uh, nicely is nicely complementary to the next uh, question from uh, Jordan Mansell mm -hmm. from uh, Western University in Canada. So uh, good morning to you, uh, Jordan. Uh, for your upcoming research on belief and risk, what mediating and moderating factors are you planning to control for? For example, tolerance of uncertainty? Um, yeah, the, 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 this is um, a very good question. Good question. We were also sort of uh, toying around with, with this answer uh, together with uh, the group of people we work with on these projects now. Um, tolerance for uncertainty could be indeed like one interesting factor. Uh, we are thinking about employing indeed like measures for cognitive rigidity um, or flexibility controlling for those. Political sophistication, I guess, goes without saying. Um, I don't know, I guess impulsivity would be another uh, interesting uh, thing to look into. Yeah, if you have any more suggestions, please, uh, Jordan, thank you for your for your question. And I'd be very happy to hear if you have more thoughts. Uh, please feel free to contact me as well. I'd be very happy to share ideas with you. Yeah, and yeah, you can also uh, type that into the chat box if you like, uh, Jordan, thanks. Uh, now, uh, 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 the amount is just sort of a practical uh, question, since uh, uh, most of the people listening in uh, have never conducted EEG studies. Having myself some experience with psychophysiology, um, it's really a lot that you need to and <laughs> uh, that you need to learn. But also, uh, um, there are a, a thousand ways of, of of actually conducting these studies. Could you give uh, a couple of um, quick pointers as to if you would want to conduct an EEG study, what, you know, what, what, what should people think of, uh, what should people right. read? Uh, well, you know, beyond the, the sort of like practicalities that, that relates to the equipment and understanding what yeah. you're doing with like coding. So for instance, like coding would be one practical example. Uh, I think that it's quite important for the, for the researcher who is interested in employing such methods to be able to, um, uh, to code a little bit in programming languages such as MATLAB, for instance, or Python. Uh, so starting from there might actually help a lot. Uh, another very important thing in designing and um, you know, uh, launching EEG studies would be to carefully think of, of um, specific time ranges that you're interested at and carefully mark these time ranges in the raw EEG signal so that you can you know, derive your uh, areas of interest, to put it this way. Um, beyond that, I guess it's, it's just practice and, and experience. It helps a lot to give very clear instructions to participants in the lab, because usually these type of measurements um, take a lot of time. 
and uh, that that can um, you know induce some sort of distress like to the participant or so so it's, it's good to inform people up front about that and sort of help them uh, help you you know obtain better quality data that's something that i keep on stressing to to my colleagues and students and so forth um it has helped a lot like in in, in my own research um and carefully think about experimental time i guess that that that's one of the most important things uh, to consider yeah okay thanks uh bert has one more question bert sorry that's a bit slow um yeah thanks the amount is uh, um we, uh, maybe, yeah, I'm going to ask the theoretical question. Um, back to the knowledge sort of component. Uh, there are two competing models basically at the moment in, in, in the political science, political psychology literature. One suggests, well, so one suggests that, well, actually, Dan Kahan would say, well, it's the more sophisticated, those that can think better, that they would be motivated to defend their beliefs and and uh, and actually would would counter to what you say would be the sort of the more objective um other people have said like Finn Arsenault said well it's actually when people don't have a very strong attachment to politics then their knowledge drives them to be more objective and more flexible as you described mm -hmm. Tabor Lodge and uh and and uh and 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 also some of the work i've done suggests that it's actually people who are highly invested in politics and an effective attachment that are the people that are the most motivated to be rigid so so can some can some of the of the could some of the neuroscientific tools help us tackle where we are in the observational world or the survey experiments are trying to theorize about cognitive mechanisms while not directly capturing them and if so do you have ideas of how we can do this it's an easy question to end the afternoon right don't have to turn off your screen it's fantastic um i guess you know uh, you know convergence of, of these methods is is what you know helps in increasing understanding of these complex phenomena so, you know, once you are able to, I don't know, start with laboratory studies, for instance, or, you know, survey studies from observation and, you know, bring the principles of, of these observations into testing, scrutinous testing, uh, might enable you to, I don't know, to, to tear apart uh, between those um, um, groups, as you, as you suggest with your question. Um, I'm not sure how I can theoretically, like, you know, like answer this, this question adequately at the theoretical level um i guess i guess there's no you know the, i i don't think that there is like a golden standard in, in what kind of methods could be used to uh, to, to help us you know sort of that tear uh, tell apart uh between the these groups of of, of people i think it's just uh, at, at the point that we are now at at least i think it's it's still you know at the level of you know, observing correlations, see where the trends lie at, uh, try to control for confounding uh, variables and so forth. And only then we'll be able to actually dive into like core hypothesis testing uh, and, and studies that, 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 attack, that tackle uh, these kind of uh, uh, tests, hypothesis. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, that's a, so, so maybe one, one last question before we round off. Um, if you look 
in the coming years, which what part of the research process will will be the most uh, will be will be the most challenging in terms of 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 applying these 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 methods and 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 this this agenda that you're rolling out here. Well, if I'm very honest, the way I see uh, things going now, I guess you know the the whole pandemic is what, is what that poses the biggest challenge at the moment, and actually bringing people in the lab for for conducting such studies. Uh, so that that's definitely like one one big thing to. Uh, if our, if Hugo de Jong is listening to this widely uh, attended podcast, then we should uh, let him know that he should get his vaccinations in order. Uh, <laughs> students can come idea. in early. I think it's a good idea. Although yeah. there, you know, you might miss out because would the skeptics take the vaccination to yeah. then join the lab? Yeah. So, and that's actually, you know, that, that sort of gives out the answer to your question. So in general, um, you know, making it to have a representative sample is quite an endeavor, I think, when it comes to such like um, sensitive populations, because indeed, like by by sort of definition, skeptics or like very hardcore skeptics, because you know, we we as scientists could could think of ourselves as being skeptics sometimes, and that's a good thing. But I'm talking about you know the more um, uh, the the less flexible brains, right? So. Um, so these people are, are harder to persuade that you know research is for for some sort of common good, for increasing common understanding and knowledge, and you know that that actually is of benefit for us. So I'd say that this is also a sort of a, a challenge that uh, the political researcher should be aware of, regardless of whether you know you're looking on neuroscience or like on, on, on survey uh, uh, designs. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Diamantus. This is uh, I really enjoyed uh, this uh, this uh, this afternoon, and I uh, I'm sure that the people listening in are, have also have had a good uh, a good impression of uh, of the things you've worked on and what you want to work on. And I can only say that, uh, and I'm sure I speak for Gijs and the people listening, that we are very uh, excited to see what this will bring in the coming uh, years. Right? Like this, all these studies on innovation show that that diversifying teams lead to potential breakthroughs and uh, i'm i'm very excited about what will come in the in the coming in the times ahead of us um, that said uh we also have a couple of speakers in the coming weeks next week friday Teresa Kuhn from the political science department at the university of amsterdam will present a work that has not yet does not yet have a title uh, April 23rd, Liz Connors from the University of South Carolina will give a talk titled Partisan Social Pressure and Effective Polarization. And then we are already at the last Friday of the month, April 30th. Then Tobias Wittwan will uh, give a talk titled How Renewable Energy Divides Politics, the Impact of Wind Turbines on Moral, Emotional Language and Political Discourse. And uh, Michael Holman will uh, give a uh, talk um, with a to be announced title. Then on uh, we have a little break because there's all sorts of school holidays and uh, and religious holidays. And then uh, May 21, we have Cameron Brick, who is an expert on uh, in, in social psychology, working also on uh, sort of environmental communication related topics. Uh, and then June 4th, so mark your calendars, we have Luz Aldring from the FU, who will obviously talk about the gender dynamics in politics. So uh, a lot to like, uh, and I want to wish you all a pleasant uh, Friday afternoon and see you all next week when Teresa will present some of her work. All and right. European identity. Later. That's the topic. Oh, European identity.
just European identity? I guess I guess something more, but uh, but that will be the overarching European identity and or explaining European identity. Well, 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 I have to see what comes. Uh, regardless, that is important, and uh, and uh, and we look forward to that. So uh, tune in uh, next week, Friday, and we'll see you uh, uh, hopefully there. All right, bye bye.